Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Hi, this is Steve Blaze of Lily and Ash, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Hey, this is George Lynch, and you're listening to Talking Metal. This is Michael Wilson from Queensryche, and you're listening to Talking Metal. You're listening to the Talking Metal Podcast with your host, Mark Striegel, and special guest co-host, Victor M. Ruiz. iTunes number one hard rock and metal podcast. I'm Bud Friendly. Now, here are your hosts, Mark and Victor. Welcome, everyone, to another Friday night here on Talking Metal Digital. This is Victor M. Ruiz, not to be confused with Inve J. Malmsteen, <laughs> over in Spain. And over in New Jersey, we do have Mr. Mark Striegel. Mark, how are you tonight? I'm good, Victor. How you doing, man? Not too bad. A little tired from a long week of cleaning up, um, sweeping, and doing all types of things to ensure that my house keeps going, but uh, always fun to catch up with you on Friday nights. Definitely, definitely. Uh, congratulations on your, your new house, and let's quickly tell the Talking Metal listeners who we have on board tonight. If you're listening to the podcast version of this, you're getting three guests, George Lynch, Michael Wilton of Queensryche, and Steve Blaze of Lillian Axe. So three great guitar players coming your way, guys. So stay tuned. We're going to get right into the George Lynch interview in just a few minutes. And uh, when do you move into the new house, Victor? I keep saying next month. <laughs> but uh, it, it should be, you know, at some point in either late June, early July. I mean, things are really uh, been moving along. I've got the guys working on the house really concentrating on it now instead of going off to other projects right. and uh right. there's really just a little bit left so uh once it's there or or once we are there i should say we'll have to uh set up a new uh studio per se and do the live show from there and all types of great podcasting and guys yeah. be sure to check victor out on his own podcast mars attacks which is 
part of our great Talking Metal Digital Network. Victor, can you tell the folks who else we have on Talking Metal Digital? Absolutely. We have the one and only Mitch Lafon with his one-on-one with Mitch. We also have uh, the great Talking Metal with Mark Striegel and John Astronomy. And from time to time, we have Talking Rock as well. Yeah, that's, that's a rarity. <laughs> but yeah. it's one of those like limited edition models yeah that come out yeah. so often yeah and and you know what it gets like next to no listeners so um guys yeah definitely check out talking rock if you have a chance if if i had more listeners maybe i'd, I'd start doing more of it so excellent guys we also have a live stream, which some of you are listening to us right now on the live stream. It's Live 365. It broadcasts music 24-7 in CD quality. So check that out. Live 365, you can download an app to your device or you can listen on your laptop at live365.com. Just search Talking Metal or the exact address. I know it's stupid, but it's live 365.com slash Striegel, S-T-R-I-G-L, one, two, three. That's, it should be Talking Metal, but it's not. So, um, yeah. So, anyways, definitely support us on Live 365. So, let's get right into my interview with the one and only George Lynch of Lynch Mob fame, Dokken fame. We're mostly going to talk about what he's up to now. So, let's uh, jump right into it. Here is George Lynch. Hey guys, on the line we have the one and only George Lynch. George, thanks for calling in today. And thank God there's only one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think you want more than one of those. But yeah, thank you very much, man. Thanks for inviting me onto the show again. Oh, you bet. You bet. And it was a blast. I wanted to talk to you about the KXM record, which sounds just great. And it is the self-titled record, of course. Now, your guitar playing on this record, to me, I hear that classic George Lynch sound, but I also feel like there's a part of your, your playing, uh, a different side of your playing that I'm hearing. And I wanted to ask you if you feel that playing with Doug and Ray brings out a different side of your guitar playing. Well, anybody you play with or any environment you put yourself in, uh, obviously, has an effect on, you know, how you're going to react. Um, and without getting too deep, but I will for a second, if you go back, and this is maybe going to sound laughable to some people, but if you go into uh, quantum mechanics and, 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 and look at some of the uh, uh, things they've discovered there, um, even decades and decades ago, that uh, uh, what they found is you can never disconnect the observer from the observed, which means everything around you has an influence on what's happening, obviously, and who you are and what you produce and the results of your actions and so forth. So you get that kind of complicated chemistry between, you know, three or four people, it can go a lot of different directions. And it would be probably more surprising if in the context of KXM I had sounded like Lynch Mob. Right. And so absolutely uh, the, the combination of Doug and Ray and myself uh, is going to uh, produce a, a completely different result than, you know, me playing with Tony and, uh, you know, Nick Brown or, or Jeff Pilsen and Don and Dawkins or something. I mean, it's just, um, I've got to say that KSM was a, a really a very democratic process. So I decidedly did not put myself in the driver's seat. 
which was um, very refreshing for me, um, and I think yielded resulted in a better end result, you know, because uh, you know all three guys, Ray, Doug, and myself, are you know we, we kind of handle our business, we know what we're doing, and we're bringing a lot to the table. And we want that, you know, uh, we want the best ideas to come out of this, not somebody's ego <laughs> right. to be gratified. You know? So none of us were about that. It was a really uh, just very fair, even democratic process, and it, and it was natural. You know, it wasn't imposed. It was just it was zero egos, and, and it was just beautiful. It was so much fun. Cool. Now, the guitar playing that you did back in the 80s and even in 1990 on that first, you know, Lynch Mob record. And of course the work with Doc and was, has been highly influential on a lot of different players. I mean, I've read everyone from Gary Holt and Exodus, Bumblefoot and Guns N' Roses, the guys in Stained, Avenged Sevenfold have all cited your playing as an influence on them. And even like the guys in Corn and Tom Morello have, have now said that they have been influenced by, you know, a lot of the hard rock eighties, shredder guys what what do you how do you feel those guys these younger guys like the guys in corn or, or tom morello have maybe influenced your playing if if at all oh well absolutely it has i mean i think it's a mutual, a mutual uh, uh exchange of ideas uh going on there i mean i've stolen as much from tom as he may have stolen from me and other people when i say stolen i just use that kind of in a humorous way i mean uh, he's influenced me definitely. I mean, his riffs. He, to, to me, Tom is like the modern Ioni. His riffs are massive and ass shaking, and they're great. And I, I you know, uh, you know, anybody you can name. I think we all essentially we all influence each other. And it's always been that way. That's human nature. We all build on the shoulders of our predecessors in all fields of human endeavors. You know, <laughs> whether it's music or something else. And, you know, it's, that's not unique to music. Um, there is a fine line where it becomes plagiaristic at a certain point, I guess. But, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, that's how we all grow, and that's how we learn. You know, I mean, I've learned playing guitar by playing the records, you know, of Hendrix and Zeppelin and the Beatles. And, uh, you know, and I still do learn that way, you know. Um, and in turn, uh, you know, I pay that forward by influencing other people, apparently, which I find that a surprising uh that some of the people you mentioned might have been influenced by me in some small way because I really don't hear that influence of most of those names that you mentioned at all. But um, yeah, yeah, it's you yeah, know, I mean, corn. I don't, I don't hear a whole lot of docking influence. Corn. Right, right. <laughs> Although I'm sure when they were little kids, you know, that's probably what they were listening to. Or... I actually have a picture that um, Ed sent me of him when he was a teenager. And it looked like me. I mean, his big hair, stretchy wow. pants, and a tiger guitar. And then the next picture he sent me was him now with the dreads and the pads. Yeah. And so it was pretty funny. Cool. So, yes, I know he was definitely a, a fan back in the day. Right on. So, okay. I don't know if, whether his current fans, what they think of that old picture, but it's pretty funny. Yeah. So, KXM is going to do a couple more music videos I was reading? Yes, uh, they're actually, they've been shot already. Uh, we did them about a month ago. Oh, cool. Um, uh, for Gunfight, uh, the European version of Gunfight, which is significantly different than the domestic version. Um, <clears throat> and uh, we did a video for the song called Faith is a Room, 
And, uh, uh, you know, we, we set the bar pretty high with these videos because of our inability to do a whole lot of touring. Uh, we really need to have the videos work for us um, to keep us out there and, and keep people uh, interested in the record and so forth. Um, so we put a lot of uh, time and, and energy into these videos. So um, Gunfight is uh, that's a quasi-political message, uh, uh, but uh, it's also funny. <laughs> okay. A, I mean, because when we get together, we're just cracking up half the time. So we did some pretty off the wall stuff in the video. I mean, you want to see, you want to see Doug Pinnock and basically naked except for his American flag, uh, 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 tidy whities and uh, a fully auto Kalishnikov smoking a joint. Well, you know, you'll see that. But then there's, you know, there's a serious message in the film as well. So. Right. Okay. And, and Ray and I play Secret Service agents. Oh wow! It's right. a concept video, huh? Air Force One, you know, on the pulpit with uh, the megaphones of Martin uh, Martin Luther King and other luminaries, and it, it kind of covers the broad arc of history. And uh, you know, and like it's a political message that uh, you know, Tea Partiers and progressives and righties and everybody on both ends of the political spectrum could probably get behind. Cool, so, cool. Bring people together. So you mentioned that there's there's not a lot of opportunity for touring with KXM. Uh, why why is that? Just because everybody's so busy with their other projects? Because raising corn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's just no way around that. You know, he's a Ray is a member of Corn. You know, it's just not a hired gun, and that's a that's a great band to be in. You know, and Corn uh, tours a lot. You know, and uh, the thing is, when you're a member of a band. Uh, and the band needs to go to work. You, you're going with them, and your side project band can't uh, take precedent over that. So, for instance, if uh, Ray called me and Doug up and said, "Hey, I got a window. Corn doesn't like corn's touring for this one month. You know, later in the year." We went, "Okay." We called the agent. We said, "Okay, let's book a tour for that month." And then Corn's management called up and goes, "You know what? We got a couple of days on this weekend, or you got to fly to New York, or this or that, whatever it is, or we got a one-off festival in Brazil." Guess what? We got to cancel our tour, yeah. and that happens. That's in fact that you can usually depend on that happening. So, and we're not in a position, nor would we go to court and say, "Hey, man, we really we need you guys to take uh, some time off so we can tour." Yeah, <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And and those guys have been gracious with us. They really have. They've been supporting the record in any way they can, and they've been wonderful. As you said, they have. You know, maybe some of them were influenced uh, in some small way by, you know. The early, you know, hair music or something. I don't know. And so they have tremendous respect for what we're trying to do. But you know, they have a business to run, and we respect that as well. So it limits our options. I got you. Cool. Now the album has really only been out for about two months at this point. But looking into the future, do you see this musical relationship continuing with Ray and Doug? Oh well, absolutely. I mean, when we finished the record, we were it's going to go back and do another record. You know, I mean, the, the, the biggest challenges for us, the number one challenge is time, available time. Um, we barely managed to find the time to do this one in the 10 days that it took us to, to write and record the song. And then, of course, we had other, you know, we had to mix it and so forth. But uh, it was 10 days of, of writing and tracking. And that's a 
very short amount of time to create a record. <laughs> um, so, you know, we talk a lot about how we want to do the next one. And, and, and we're thinking we want to do it the same way, which is a little scary, but, you know, challenging. Right. I mean, we thought, well, maybe we want to go in with a producer and have pre-production and write the songs first and be safer and spend a little more time and money on it. And we're like, well, but this way works, so let's do it again. In other words, just I'll meet you at a studio. We won't practice. We won't write any songs, and I'll meet you at the studio. We'll set up our gear. We'll turn everything on, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> right on. And everything that we create in the studio, we'll record. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Now, I've I love been, the idea of doing it that way. It sounds very organic, and you know, you hear so much about people passing files around on the internet and stuff, and it sounds like you guys really get together and play off one another. No, it was yeah, there was none of that. It was uh, it was just uh, we captured a moment. I mean, we essentially we would get in there, fire everything up, and uh, play all together in one room and. We'd have all the speaker cabinets going and all that. So we're playing, you know, like in a rehearsal situation. And then once we had an idea figured out, you know, a bulk of an idea, we'd ask the engineer to turn on the mic and then he would record. And uh, then we'd listen back and go, well, let's change this, let's change that. We'd add a part and make this part longer. And we'd go back in and play it a little tighter until by the end of the day, we, we, we've got a song, you know. Um, and we would get at least one song a day, if not two. And it's a lot of work, but um, it's also very gratifying because you're capturing creative moments rather than, you know, coming up with it months earlier and, and reworking it to death and, you know, making it more of a sterile product rather than something that's not maybe just quite as polished, but, you know, you're capturing the, the moment that you, that you came up with the idea, which is magical, I think. Definitely. I mean, you know, I'd go in and I'd, you know, I'd overdub guitars, obviously, and, you know, Doug would do the vocals later and all this and that, you know, and we'd fix stuff and make it sound all sparkly and cool, but, you know, the, the, the bones of everything is what we did in those 10 days. Cool. Now, I've also been reading that you're doing some work with Michael Sweet of Striper fame. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, what the current status is of it? Yeah, uh, Michael and I wrote the record um, uh, over uh, a very short period of time as well. I, I, uh, and we worked remotely. So he worked on the East Coast, I worked on the West Coast. He, was, he had the band out there, which is Brian Titchy, James Lomanzo, and himself. And I worked on my own out here. So initially what I did is I went in with my engineer, KXM engineer, the wizard, uh, in my home studio. And I just, uh, you know, we programmed beats and we just came up with a whole bunch of ideas. And I submitted about an album's worth of stuff, and uh, uh, Michael threw a couple of things in there, too, his ideas, which I replayed. And uh, then they tracked drums and based everything on the East Coast, uh, you know, edited some things around and arranged things differently a little bit, and then sent it all back to me, and I retracted it if I needed to, and um, did my solos, and it's done. Uh, Michael's finished the vocals, and it sounds unbelievable. It's really magnificent. Uh, it's uh, When I heard it, it's like, to me, it's like, when I heard Michael's vocals on, I was like, this is the record that Dawkins should have done. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it has all those qualities, except with a guy that can really, really sing and actually pulls up his sleeves and goes to work and honestly, this is day as long and he's, he's 
a one, Michael is just a wonderful guy, a saint of a, a human being, and he's just a joy to work with, and no bullshit. Cool. And, uh, and got a tremendous voice. I, I actually was not familiar with his voice. I'd, I'd heard about stylistically what he does, but I never actually heard it. And so I was really, really surprised. And he's a great writer. And the hooks are huge, and execution is flawless, and, you know, everything from Beatles to metal, and it's all in there, man. It's very good. Really, really happy with him. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to hear it. How did you actually first come in contact with him? Well, we, we played some shows with, uh, 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 Winston played some shows with, uh, Stripers last year or the year before, I think. And, uh, you know, we did the rock cruise and we did the casino gigs and things like that. And quite honestly, I never really listened to Michael. <laughs> I was busy or doing right. something else. Never really focused in on him. And, uh, I guess, uh, he, he was watching our show one day and then came up to me and said he wanted to do something that was ever in the cards. And I said, well, I'm not sure. And uh, then his label approached me and asked me if I wanted to get involved. And I said, absolutely. You know, and uh, very simple and really easy and a handshake deal. And uh, we went to work and it was, um, results uh, are phenomenal. Really. This might be, you know, sometimes you do work and you think, well, like I'll do a, I guess you could call it like a vanity project. Like I'm doing one right now called Unimog. It's kind of post-industrial with, you know, ambient kind of elements and trip-hop, but with my guitar playing on it. You know, really strange oh, wow. record. And heavy and weird. But I love it, you know, and, and I'm just doing it just to do it. And uh, it's all program machine music and stuff. And it's a blast. And I'm, I'm doing that. And I'm thinking, well, I'm putting all this work into this. This probably won't be a blip on the radar. Well, the Michael Sweet thing was really, I didn't, you know, I didn't labor over it. I mean, I spent, you know, maybe a week on it. <clears throat> and, you know, it's fantastic. And I'm thinking, you know what? <laughs> this thing that you didn't expect really to, you didn't really put a whole lot of thought into, or, you know, I have a whole lot of expectations. It was a gig, you know? Right. right. And I'm finding that it, it, you know, it might be surprisingly, uh, surprisingly well. Because cool. it seems to be highly anticipated and, and it just gelled. I, I can't deny that. I'm listening to it, and I'm not honestly a big fan of music. I used to play 80s, most of the 80s music, but I'm listening to this, and I'm like, wow, this is... I mean, there were good things about 80s music that, that I did like. You know, I like Rat, and I like some of the stuff Dawkins did and a few other bands. And this is like the best of that, but even better, you know? All there. I'm just pinching myself. Going, Damn, cool. I hope people hear this record. When does it come out? Uh, that's the tricky thing. Uh, it looks like the record company doesn't plan to release it until 2015, even though it's done. Oh, okay. It's unfortunate because, you know, just from a personal standpoint, I'd like it to be heard sooner rather than later, but, you know, I can't control those things. Cool. Now, you're going to be doing a rock and roll fantasy camp with Brad Whitford from Aerosmith, Warren from Rat. Uh, Steven from Jane's Addiction, Stu Ham's going to be a part of that. Uh, do you enjoy doing these these fantasy camp gigs? Um, well, there's this, I do. Uh, it, on one level, it's good for me to get out there and uh, and um, I learn. I actually learn more, I think, than the students learn by because I have to, you know, I have to be on my game when you do that stuff. You know, you can't be a slouch. And I want to give these people something, you know. I mean, in fact, I just did a clinic today in Hollywood at MI, and I feel a responsibility, you know, 
to impart something to uh, students and fans and these campers at these rock fantasy camps that's valuable. You know, I'm not just there to collect a paycheck. I'm there to to, to, to edify or or pay something forward, uh, you know, that I've learned uh, over the years and, uh, and instruct them, you know, on technical things and how to compose and how to record and how to perform and whatever it is, you know, how to get a better tone. And so each... So whether or not it's a, a uh, positive experience for me really depends on the individual people I'm working with. And I've had wonderful experiences uh, in Rock Fantasy Camp. I've done uh, three of them so far. And I've had some challenging experiences, to right. say the least. Uh, so it's very dependent on, on the, the band, you know. And yeah. it's, sort of, it's sort of like picking a... Uh, a name out of a hat. You don't know who you're going to get. So you can get somebody that can actually play and is there for the right reasons, or you can get somebody there that's just had the money to can afford to be there and they're fans of whoever and if they are not taking their playing that seriously. And that can be challenging and frustrating for me. But, you know, it only takes one bad apple to spoil the bunch. Right on. So, you, you mentioned that you were a fan of Rat, and Warren is going to be a part of the, the fantasy camp that's coming up. Do you remember hearing Rat for the first time, and specifically Warren Martini's playing, and being impressed or threatened? Or what, what were your thoughts when you first heard him hit the scene? Well, uh, you know, I've known Warren from early, you know, Rat days. I mean, Rat was coming up at the same time Dawkins was coming up. We are both in L.A., and, you know trading members back and forth and rehearsing in the same rooms and playing the same gigs. So we were friends, so uh, it wasn't like he was this guy I didn't know. But um, then we became friends uh, over the years and spent time together and jammed together and this and that. And uh, he's made, uh, you know, it's been no secret that he's that I've been influential on his style, stylistically on him to some extent, although I think he's more influenced by Yuli Roth and Michael Schenker. But... Um, but when I listen to him, I, I can hear that. I can hear uh, Marshall you know, playing a little bit. But I hear other things that I don't have. And so when I listen to him technically, I, 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 I'm curious about, about you know, how he pulls his stuff off. And he's you know, a very fluid player. And he's the kind of guy that rehearses what he plays and knows everything he's going to play and repeat. And he can play it the same every time. I'm the opposite. I have no idea what I'm playing, and I just play off the top of my head and I can never play the same thing twice. Right. So it's it's kind of ironic that we stylistically we're both kind of on records that you know, we play the same general style. Right. And yet we come from polar opposite, you know, points of view uh, how we approach our playing. So I I, I learned from him. You know, I've learned to be a better player by listening to what he does and how he flows and his phrasing and and uh, I think he's a very mature player. Uh, even back then, you know, uh, he's, you know, from, comes from my era of playing where it's kind of a, uh, a mashup of, you know, blues and, and early rock and then some more technical, you know, components to our playing too. Um, and that's kind of what he does. We both kind of do the same thing. So it'll be interesting to see him at the stock camp and hang out with him a bit. Cool. Well, now, another kind of guy out of that whole scene that blossomed back in those days was Jakey Lee. He recently has resurfaced with the Red Dragon Cartel record. Have you heard that record at all? Yes. And, and I, I saw him live. Cool. 
suppose. Do you enjoy the record? Uh, well, I mean, part of me does because um, I love Jake and, and I love, you know, the fact he came up at the same time as Warren and myself and Randy and, and other players, Eddie and everybody else in that LA scene. Um, and, you know, went through some, some crap, you know, in his life and whether it was self-imposed or otherwise, and, you know, we've all had to deal with that. And, you know, so, so, uh, feel for him. And, and he's brave enough to get back in the saddle and everybody wants to see him do well. And I think it, I think quite honestly, it's going to take some time because he's been gone a long time, you know? Right. right. And, and, you know, I, I, well, it's, I, it's not really going crazy on the record, but, you know, at the same time, it's just like, who am I to judge, you know? Let the guy work it out and, get his chops back and get his skills back up to where they were and, and uh, you know so I think people are uh, have patience to wait for, for him to come around but I think it was a very brave move for him to come back and put himself back in the limelight okay cool and you gotta give him uh, kudos for that for sure definitely and how's Jeff Pilson doing oh Jeff never changes he's a rock you know solid as a rock he's uh, you know we look close to each other and work together whenever we can and we are uh you know he's in corner obviously and works you know those 200 dates a year or something and he's working constantly but um we talked recently and we uh are going to finish the uh second tnn record starting in november we're going to retitle the band uh and we're using michael sweet as a vocalist oh, so wow. basically it'll be myself nick brown and jeff so it's docking without dawn and with Michael Smith replacing Don. Oh, excellent. Cool. And this will be something that could potentially play live? Well, that, again, is similar to the situation with Ray and Korn. Jeff being in corner uh, really creates an obstacle to us being able to perform. We, uh, on the heels of the TNN record, we had a lot of uh, uh, offers to go out and play very substantial offers and that we had to decline because of that situation and it, was, it really made us all heart sick that we couldn't do it but um, we'll have to see I mean you know eventually yes Jeff and I would like to be in a in this project and and and, and have that be our band you know and, and and actually you know go out and tour do meaningful touring you know uh, and uh, until he is ready and able to do that, we can't pull the trigger on that. But we're going to start working on the record anyways and see where he's at with his relationship with Warner. But, you know, he's going to continue on with Warner, I'm, I'm sure, for, for a while. So um, I, 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 I'm sort of in the, you know, mindset of just, you know, do the work, feel the creative urgency, you know, make the music and get it out there and then everything else will fall into place or I don't really have a master plan for anything right. anymore. All right. We encourage all the talking metal listeners to check out the self-titled KXM record and a uh, big thanks to George for calling into talking metal. Thank you, George. Yeah, man. So I guess I'll talk to you in another six months. <laughs> sounds good. We'll talk to you. All then. right. Sounds good. Thank you. Buddy. Have a good night.
revolution, the people, the solution, yeah, right before my eyes. What you just heard was KXM, Doug Pinnock, George Lynch, rocking it. And that song was called Gunfight. 
always good to check in with George. And uh, we had him on probably six months ago, and it was great to talk to him the other day. That was a pre-recorded interview. And at the end of the interview, he says, talk to you in another six months. So I, I, I will take him up on that. I plan to call him back in, in about six months and get another update. So we have Michael Wilton of Queensryche. Yes. How long have you been a Queensryche fan, Victor? Um, not as long as you've been a, a Queensryche fan. I'll, I'll admit to that. But uh, for me, the one moment that really sucked me in was seeing the Revolution Calling video. And uh, that just made me a fan instantly. Uh, the Operation Mindcrime CD was actually the third CD that I ever got. So I always remember those first few CDs that were either, either given to me or, or, that, uh, or that I purchased. And that was number three, and I played the hell out of that album. Right and on. I, to this day, love it. Right on. Well, I'm looking forward to talking with Michael. I, I spoke with him and Parker and... Eddie and Todd, oh, probably, well, it was probably a year and a half ago at this point, uh, in, in Englewood, New Jersey. And that was a great interview. And I, I was a big fan of the self-titled 2013 record they put out last year. It was on definitely in my top five, I think, for the year. And I'm very excited to know that they are already working on new material. So we definitely have to talk to them about that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I really look forward to that as well. I was listening to that album uh, this week and sort of revisiting the album. And it it sort of pulls me back to what they had done, you know, way back when with those first few albums. And I don't know, it's just great that they're doing that again. And it's funny because they're one of the only bands out there, and, and I did a podcast on this, regarding how bands can switch members and how people will complain about this person not sounding the same or this person changing changing the dynamic of the band. But I think for the most part, Queensryche fans have applauded the switch to Todd LaTorre because they've gotten what they've been waiting for for years. And I, I agree. You know, I don't think that Jeff Tate, I mean, based on what he's given us so far... I don't think he'll ever go back uh, to what the band did originally, to what drew a lot of people in. And as much as Silent Lucidity got them airplay and as much as you know, maybe they tried to draw some of those casual fans back into the mix, it just never happened to them as it doesn't happen for a lot of other bands. It isn't exclusive to Queensryche. And the fans wanted it. The fans got it, and I haven't heard one diehard Queensryche fan say, you know what, I don't dig that Queensryche album from uh, 2013. Yeah. Nothing but, you know, five stars across the board from everyone. Yeah, it's a great record. I love it. I love it. Real quick, I want to check in with you people on Twitter. I'm seeing Todd H. Man, he's a diehard. I love this guy. Todd H. checking in. Present and accounted for. Been a while. Yeah, it has, Todd. We actually did a live show last week, which if, if you haven't heard that, Todd, it's up in podcast form on iTunes and on TalkingMetal.com. So, uh, but I'm glad you're here joining us live. We've got a handful of listeners. Guys, spread the word that we do do these live shows. I know it's been sporadic and you know I got really swept up in doing all these shows with Mitch, but um, I, I want to get back on a, a regular 
routine here. And it looks like we're going to do next Friday, right, Victor? Is that cool with you? Yeah, that, that's cool with me. Any Friday that you're available, I'm more than game to do the show. Excellent. So you got some music you want to play before we get into uh, the interview? Uh, sure. Okay, well, uh, before you do that, let me just okay. read this quickly, a little plug here, guys. This is a great way to get 100 bucks for free. Listeners, help Talking Metal stay free to download by completing this short, anonymous survey. It will take no more than five minutes of your time. Your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibility of our podcast and its listeners like you. Listeners who complete the survey will be entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We promise not to share or sell your email address, and we won't send you email unless you win. Please go to www.podsurvey.com slash metal. That's www.podsurvey.com slash metal to take our survey and get a chance to win a $100 gift card. The survey, guys, takes literally like three minutes. It's, I mean, they, they claim it takes five minutes. I think it's less than that. So do it, and you could potentially win a gift card. This is a, a, a real contest. It's, but, you know, not everyone wins. But some of you will, so definitely check it out. Cool, Victor. Um, you want to jam some, some music here? Sure. Wait, before Actually, you do that, I just wanted to, one thing that I thought was crazy before, real quick, and I know we got to get going here, but George Lynch in the interview we just heard mentioned what I thought was, was new news that he's basically reforming Dokken, not going to be called Dokken, with Michael Sweet. Mick Brown, Jeff Pilson, uh, yeah, George Lynch, of course, and Michael Sweet. Now we know George is working with Michael Sweet on a record, which is something different. But he's basically announced that he's going to be doing even more work with Michael Sweet. So I, I found that very interesting. Had you heard that? Um, I'd, I'd heard that he was working with George, but not that he was going to be getting together with the other two members of the classic Dokken lineup. Yeah, he is. He's, he, that's what he told me. I mean, he's working with Michael on a, on a record that's done, it sounds like. It doesn't come out until early 2015. But he's also has plans to basically reform Dokken without Don and having Michael Sweet do, do vocals. You know, um, won't be called Dokken, obviously, but, you know, it's essentially those of that classic Dokken lineup. It's going to be the three guys plus Michael Sweet. So we're, we're running uh, into our interview here with Michael. Hopefully uh, we'll have him on the line on time. Do you want to get into some music? Sure. Let's get into something off of the last Queensryche album, actually. Let's go with uh, Where Dreams Go to Die, and hopefully on the other side we will have Michael Wilton from the band Queensryche. Excellent. When heroes lay to rest, when we watch our idols. 
there we had a little Queensryche with Where Dreams Go to Die. And joining us on the phone is Michael Wilton from the band Queensryche. Michael, how are you? I am doing very fine. How is everybody there? Thank you for playing Where Dreams Go to Die. Absolutely. We were just talking about how much the two of us enjoyed the album that came out a little while ago. And you guys obviously are... Uh, in the process of writing a new album, and we just wanted to talk about that and a few other things and help get the word out there about what's going on with the band. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So right off the bat, there was the big news regarding the lawsuit being settled, and now the band can move forward officially as Queensryche, as the only Queensryche. How big of a relief is it for you guys that all of this was taken care of in what seems like to us a quick fashion? I'm sure to you guys it took forever. Yes, you know, we feel like we're making our way out of the trenches as far as uh, lawsuits are concerned. But we are so happy to be rebuilding the name Queensryche. And we are just ecstatic. And the fans are even more ecstatic. Excellent. And one of the interesting items that came out was that Jeff Tate would be allowed to continue to perform Operation Mindcrime and Mindcrime 2 in their entirety. Does that mean that Queensryche the band can no longer play either of those in their entirety? And would you actually be interested in playing Mindcrime 2 in its entirety? Um. To generally say, we can still play songs from any album. Okay. Just not a stage show of Mind Crime 1 and 2. Okay, but if you were to play just the first one, would you be able to do that or not at all? Um, we would be able to possibly do that in certain circumstances. Okay. okay cool. So you're already working on a follow-up to the, the great 2013 release. And were there leftover songs from, from that album or are you writing all new material? I know there was even stuff in the press that, that there were a lot of songs left over from the Jeff Tate years that, that you had written that hadn't been used. So I'm just wondering where you are with the songwriting process and the recording process of the next record. Yeah, we're in the uh, demo stage and just all the brainstorming for the, uh, the new album, and um, we are writing all new material. Um, if anything from the past, it was dissected like mad scientists. And uh, so, but basically we're uh, fresh new music, and it's all going very well. We're busting our asses to get uh, lots of songs ready, and uh, it's going to be a very fun, another epic album. Cool. And when you say we're writing material, does that include everyone, Parker, Eddie, everyone's writing together? Yes, the writing process is the Queensryche band. Everybody is willing and loves to put their input into songwriting and everything about Queensryche. So, yes, we are writing as a band. Um, and... Uh, since we have done this already, like you said, on the prior uh, disc, we 
have the same process and we're going to do the same thing with a CD. So it's much fun and much more pleasurable to have a democracy and have everybody throw in their ideas into the mix. Cool. And are you working with a producer yet or is it a little premature for that? Yeah, we're in the demo stage right now, so we haven't uh, really locked up the whole producer uh, engineer thing yet. And is there a direction that you guys are going musically? Will you kind of continue along the theme of the last record, or do you see it going somewhere different? Well, it's kind of hard to say. Um, you know, as a, a musician and an artist, it's kind of what inspires you the most. But, you know, we do have our lineage, our red-haired, you know, strings of our past. So you, you will hear um, echoes from some of the classic albums that we have been playing on this tour. Okay, cool. And with the writing process, I mean, when you wrote the previous album, I'm sure that there was some sort of fuel behind the writing which pertained to the lawsuit that was just taken care of. Now having the lawsuit put aside and all that behind you, does that now give you guys an additional, say, kick to make sure that things are, you know, um, moving forward? As you're saying, uh, what I'm trying to get at is how different is the inspiration from the past with the previous album to what it is now, now that the lawsuit is gone with this album? Um, well, I mean, we don't look at it or view it as any momentum from that kind of a, a negative uh, situation. You know, it's, we're more organized this time, um, so we're a little more, uh, you know, freshly balanced on everything that's going around, and that means uh, everybody. So uh, we are, you know, very happy, um, just like we were on the last one, but I think we're just taking off where we uh, left off on the last album and, you know, letting things uh, just take fruition and you know, bring back that classic sound. Okay. And, and as you said that you are going to be influenced by a lot of the tracks that you're playing off of some of the older albums, is there any one album that you sit down and try to dissect and maybe try to revisit some of the same things that inspired you back then when working on the new material? I mean, well, you know, we look to uh, more areas of our career where we were all working together and uh, those those tend to you know bring more of an impact into the writing process but you know for us it's it's just all about everybody being able to throw their abilities into the pot and just get things stirring and really just uh, just you know bring whatever inspiration to the table is needed okay and with the demoing that has been going on, uh, about how far along are you with the demos and how soon can you foresee going into the studio? Um, as far as the demos, I mean, they're, they're, they're cooking daily. So, uh, we're, and when I mean demo, I mean, you know, music with lyrics and vocals. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're about halfway to our uh, goal and we're uh, doing really well. We're not rushing anything. We're not forcing anything. This is all just very organically coming and, and being created. And, um, but uh, we are very, we're working very di diligently. 
because we had a bit of, in this situation, a bit more organization. And we are just going to have quite, quite a list to dwindle down and choose for the next CD. Gotcha. And if you were to give fans a ballpark figure, do you think this would be out late this year, some point next year, perhaps? Um, <clears throat> well, basically, I mean, the, the record company Century Media says that uh, we can put out the album whenever uh, it's done. So, um, you know, that in mind uh, is, is good for us. I mean, although we love deadlines, but we are scheduled, uh, you know, anytime the end of this year or the beginning of next year or the spring of next year. It's just we can't really foresee everything and, and how it's all going to be uh, put together logistically. But I think, um, you know, with the momentum we have right now, things are looking really good. Hey, Michael, I wanted to ask you, when I saw you guys last year in concert, it was just such an amazing show. It featured music basically, you know, from your first four records and the EP, of course. You guys didn't do anything off the Promised Land record, which was a personal favorite of mine, along with, you know, all the stuff that came out in, in the 80s and, and Empire, of course, in 1990. Do you have negative feelings towards that record or positive feelings towards that record? I'm just wondering, like, when you look back now, how do you view The Promised Land? Um, the Promised Land, uh, just the reason why we haven't played any songs live is just out of necessity that uh, Todd was only familiar with uh, Empire and Prior. So, you know, we have to uh, go back, I guess, from the, you know, the scratch pad, very, very beginning of, of these songs for him to, to get used to and to get comfortable singing. So, but we are, we're working on songs from the promised land. Um, I know we've, we've uh, rehearsed uh, IMI and Damaged, and there's a couple others that um, have piqued curiosity. Yeah, I mean, as, as, you know, the band grows together, it's, you know, there's no telling, you know, we might pull songs from, from Tribe or, you know, from uh, Q2K or whatever, you know, if, if, it, if it works in the set. But, you know, our, our primary focus was, you know, there was such a longing for Queensryche to play the classic songs from the Absolutely. first five albums. And that's what we concentrated on. And fortunately, that's what um, Todd knew as far as a vocalist uh, and a fan of the band. So th that's why we uh, chose those songs. Excellent. So as long as you guys are feeling the songs and have interest in them, you wouldn't be opposed to playing anything from any era of the band. No, I mean, it's got to fit the vibe. It's got to fit the, the set list, and everybody's got to believe in the songs. Um, so, uh, you know, that, we listen to the fans a lot, and we um, really, you know, try to appease as many people as possible. So we're constantly uh, getting bombarded with, you know, why don't you play this? Why don't you play this? Why don't you play this? So it's, it's just a matter of... Uh, eventually, you know, getting to all those requests and, you know, seeing if it works in the set. 
Gotcha. Okay. Uh, the, the one last question that I had a, a few years back, you did cover Neon Nights by Black Sabbath. Uh, Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell is an album that I'm going to be covering uh, for a special episode of my podcast. And I just wanted to ask you about that Heaven and Hell album, what that meant to you when you first heard it and what your thoughts are of those tracks so many years later. Oh, it's it's such a monumental uh, album. I can say album because it was an album when I purchased it. And um, in Queensryche's formative years, I mean, that was something that we really listened to and, and loved. And, and actually, before we were Queensryche, we were playing um, covers, and we did play a lot of uh, Black Sabbath with the Ronnie James Dio uh, cover songs, and that was... Uh, so much fun. So it's just it brings back so many great memories. It's still just a, a great uh, record to listen to, and um, you know I, I can't say enough about it. I've I was uh, lucky enough to to meet Ronnie James Dio many times, and um, you know it's just uh, it's just a great great memory personally for me. Excellent. Mark, do you have anything else? Well, I mean, I've asked you this before. I'll ask you again since I haven't spoken with you in a while. But are you currently in touch with Chris DeGarmo, and how's he doing? Yes, Chris. And, uh, yeah, I was just with him actually today. So uh, we were hanging out. You know, he's he's like a brother to me. Um, so, yeah, we uh, we always talk, and, and he wants to, you know, how are things going, blah, 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 you know, all the small talk and everything. But, um yeah, he's he's still you know very busy as a, as a pilot, um, and uh, he loves what he does. But uh, you know we're we're really good friends, and you know I imagine that's, that's something that special that we've had for for so many years. Even back when I was in high school, you know we were we were good friends. So yes, we keep in touch all the time. Do you think he'd ever do some writing with you guys, or is is that kind of in the past, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to even speculate. Um, that would that would have to come from Chris himself, and you know, it's doors always open. But you know, it's like I can't. Uh, I'm not going to keep pushing him in the side or bug him. You know, he's got to be good with it. And uh, but you know, it's it's basically it's his call. Right on. Great. Awesome. Thanks so much, Michael. We can't wait to hear the new music. Good luck with it, and please keep us posted on everything. Okay, thanks, guys. Have a good weekend. You too. Keep it metal. Right on. Bye-bye.
We are back. It was very cool talking to Michael Wilton there. It seems like he was in good spirits and really raring to go and interested to talk about, you know, everything going on with the band. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it, you know, it's it's interesting. He didn't really come out and say that he's approached Chris DeGarmo about possibly writing with them. But, you know, he he basically said it's up to Chris, which led me to wonder if if there had been a discussion at, at some point but who knows it's all just speculation on my part and chris DeGarmo, no chris DeGarmo. Uh, it doesn't matter to me i'm still very excited for new queensrike material yeah I, I think that last album really sort of put that discussion to bed don't you think because for so long it was well you know if DeGarmo was in the band but now they put out such a strong album without him it's almost as if that sort of has died down, at least with right. with its fan base. Yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I think it was an incredibly strong record, and you know, I I think Parker. I know he only. I think he only wrote one or two songs on that record, or co-wrote, I should say. But he, I think he brings a, a youthful element to it. The the whole thing that I think is 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 cool. And, right. you know, it's the same way, same thing with, with Richie Faulkner of, of, of Priest. I mean, neither one of them are, are I would, youth. I mean, they're not 18 years old, but, you know, they're, Richie's in his early 30s. Parker's probably not much over 30, if he's even 30. Um, right. You know, so, which I think is good. I think it's good for, for some of these bands. And hell, man, Queensryche, I, I am such a, a fan of those first like four albums and plus the ep and you know i mentioned promise land to him but for me promise land was kind of a, a record that i didn't get into i'll be honest with you i didn't i wasn't really that into promise land when it came out you know i i heard a couple of the songs i knew i knew a couple of the songs but i never bought the record and I, it wasn't one that i really soaked my 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 ears with quite the opposite actually you know like i said i never owned it but in more recent years, in the last decade, I've, I've definitely come to appreciate and like the Promised Land record quite a bit. Yeah, the, the two tracks you mentioned, IMI and Damaged, are, are two really good tracks that could slot in easily 
with uh with their earlier material i mean that album for me is you know has either really strong tracks or it sort of started to show what the band was going to evolve into at least with the next album or two um but i mean again i am i is a fantastic track i mean absolutely that ranks up there with some of their stronger material from their earlier albums and to hear that they're uh you know um rehearsing that and working that into their you know repertoire uh that's great i mean i would love to see them play that track live because that's always a track that i thought was was cool and even i remember seeing that video on mtv which was you know so different to uh a lot of the other videos that were being shown on, say, Headbangers Ball at the time. Absolutely. And guys, real quick, I wanted to mention, if you're an Alice Cooper fan, please check out One on One with Mitch LaFont, episode 12. He does a, a great interview with uh, Alice. I don't know if you've heard that yet, Victor, but it's it's definitely worth uh, listening to. I think one of the first interviews Alice has ever given where he admits and talks about his cocaine addiction, something that that I never knew. It's always been Alice was a drunk, but he also was a cokehead, so... It's kind of new right. news that I guess will also be uh, talked about in this upcoming documentary, Super Duper Alice Cooper. Speaking of classic rockers, we were just talking off air about a little Jimmy Page news, which since we have kind of made that a topic that we talk about a lot here on the podcast, why don't you tell us what was said, Victor? Yeah, uh, apparently the New York Times uh, approached Jimmy Page and asked him about you know, uh, Robert Plant and his whole deal with not wanting to play Zeppelin tracks. And he mentions, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, something to the effect of him being, you know, fed up with Robert and hearing his comments and saying how they're willing and ready and able to go. And the interesting thing on the other side is that Plant is almost saying, you know, hey, they should do it. They had singers in place. You know, why didn't they do it when, you know, they were rehearsing with other people? So I I don't know. It's just interesting. Some friction there. I think they've always kind of kept their squabbles private, but it, it was definitely interesting to see them boil over into the pages of mainstream media with the with the new york times article definitely um cool so we got steve blaze from lillian axe about to call in and we want to get into some music here sure this is antarctica by lillian axe coming off of their waters rising out right on and when we get back from this song in theory we will have steve blaze from lillian axe on the on the line with us Bye. 
What you just heard there was a little Antarctica by the band Lillian Axe. And on the line, we have founding member of Lillian Axe, Steve Blaze. How are you, Steve? Hey, man. What's going on? How are you guys doing? Oh, we're great, man. We haven't spoken with you in a while, but we're glad to have you back yeah, on Talking Metal. Yeah, it's good to have you back on Talking Metal. And we're psyched because there is a new acoustic live record coming out, One Night in the Temple. And not only do you play on it, you produce it. So let's let's talk about this. Uh, why is now the time for an acoustic live record? Uh, well, you know, we put out Days Before Tomorrow two years ago. And uh, we wanted to do, it started off as just kind of a special event where we were going to get a very small group of people together and do this acoustic thing with just two guitars and Brian singing. And the thing just all of a sudden exponentially started growing. Uh, next thing you know, we're going to have the whole band play, and then we're going to invite 60 contest winners, and we're going to have family and friends, and we're going to do it in the studio. And the next thing you know, it's a five-hour event with questions and answers and catering and everything, and wound up being a, just an entire night uh, encompassing our uh, entire career. But we wanted to do it acoustically. Uh, that way we could you know, really showcase the songs, strip them down, and... Uh, play things from every one of our records and it just kind of grew into this monster and um, it was very important that we were able to capture the essence of the night. It was a very kind of a spiritual emotional night for the band and uh, the people in the audience and um, I think we were really uh, fortunate in being able to capture those moments not only audio but through the documentary uh, because it's a, it's a DVD, uh, Blu-ray of the actual event but in between songs, there's interviews and backstage footage and rehearsals and uh, everything that, that led up to the actual event. And uh, we've got bonus features on it as well. So it wound up being a, a lot bigger monster at the end of the day than we had anticipated at first. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned these these are like hardcore fans and, and contest winners because I watched some of the EPK footage, uh, which I'm assuming is the footage from the documentary yeah. and concert. And, and I was taken back by, by how, how hardcore these, these people were just knowing every, every lyric and actually, like you said, looking rather emotional while you guys are playing some of these songs. It was, you know, um, the contest was for people to send in their collection of Lillian X memorabilia. And, and some of these people had, you know, more pieces than I ever did. It was amazing, and you know I've always said that Lillian X fans are a, a separate breed. I mean, our, our music's different. It's it's not surface level stuff. And for people that really get into the band, they're diehard and they're very very loyal. And it's very important that they um, are realize that they're a vital part of the, the whole organization. And um, we invited them to ask questions, and we told them there's no limit. You know, you ask what you want to ask. And uh, 
they all submitted their questions, and we tried as much as we could. Everybody that uh, had, had submitted questions, uh, we gave them the opportunity to be on there. That's a great thing about the DVD, too. Everyone in the audience has FaceTime uh, from our families, crew, the fans. Everybody's uh, they're on there at some point throughout the movie. And uh, they just, you know, it's more to them than just listening to music when they listen to our stuff. They become our friends. They become intimate with the, the meanings of the songs. And uh, and I, I think that's, uh, that's a testament to uh, the, the importance of how much the music means to certain people. Right on, definitely. And then speaking of the music... How much reworking and rearranging do you have to do to to make a song that wasn't originally acoustic acoustic? Uh, is is it hard or or is it just? I mean, because I imagine some of the stuff that you play on electric, you just don't want to play it the exact same way on acoustic, right? That's a good question, and it's very frequently asked. I think there's kind of a misconception that you know, if you do it acoustically, it's got to be played differently, it's got to be rearranged, reworked, and to be honest with you, there's a lot less of that than you would think. I mean, we pretty much play it like the record. Um, there's certain things, you know, especially in soloing, I try to solo as much as, as I possibly can close to the to the, uh, uh, the solos on the record, but there are obviously limitations playing on an acoustic guitar and on an electric guitar as far as being able to, uh, there are not as many frets, and it's, it's harder to get up to the higher frets for some of the high soloing, but uh, kept it pretty close. And um, as far as arrangements, we kept the arrangements just like the record. Um, there was a couple of things that we did. Now, we had some unique moments. We brought a violin player in to accompany me on Day I Met You, and we had a guest singer, Johnny Vines, the original singer before we got signed, came in and sang two songs that um, I wrote while he was a uh, singer for the band in our, in our club days. And um, we also had uh, Nobody Knows. We did a version where uh, Johnny and Brian, they did a, a duet. And we had another version of the same song, but the crowd sang. So they are the lead vocals in, in, throughout the entire song. Wow. So we, we tried to mix it up and make it unique and, um, and make it interesting. And, uh, but, Back to your question, we really didn't have to rearrange stuff. We just okay. uh, had to really pay a lot of attention to it because when you, when it's stripped down like that, there's a, it's very obvious if you hear you know things being played incorrectly or, or flat vocals. <laughs> right, right, cool. And do you do songwriting on acoustic, or do you prefer to write on electric? You know, when I write, it's kind of a unique way because I write most of the time everything in my head without even holding an instrument. Um, I just hear everything, and then I'll sit down. I say half the times with an acoustic guitar and the other half with, uh, with one of my electrics. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, I don't, I'm not the kind of guy that sits there and works out solos. They all just come very, very naturally to me. Um, most of the stuff is done inside of my head. But it depends. Um, on, on what I just happen to kind of have at my disposal. I mean, I don't write okay. like just ballads on the acoustic and all heavy stuff. It has to be on an electric guitar with an amp. I, you know, I don't work like that. I've always, since I was a kid, I was um, class trained, so I listen to a lot of classical music. And I think 
what I really learned the most from studying composers was listening to compositions and how with classical music, I listened to how the different instrumentations worked with each other. So when you had, you know, a Bach piece and you'd listen to the violins and how they worked with the cellos and the oboes and, and vice versa and watch the movement between the pieces. To me, I hear drums, bass, different guitar pieces, vocal layers and what like that working in the same capacity. I look at the vocals as another instrument. I look at the bass as a separate instrument and how they all work together. So when I'm coming up with the ideas, I hear those. I don't just hear like, you know, let me go write a guitar riff and we're going to build a song around that. I hear everything uh, very fluidly working together um, as a whole piece. And uh, which is good because I, I, I have had moments where I've tried to write songs around sections and it's torturous because if it doesn't come natural right off the top, I find that usually most of the time it's not to be. But that's okay. just my weird way of working things. Right, right. And the again, the album is coming out next week, I believe, right? The end of May, May 27th? Yeah, a week from two, May, the uh, 27th, uh-huh. Perfect. And it is called One Night in the Temple. It's two CDs plus a DVD or Blu-ray, right? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Great. And the uh, DVD has some bonus footage. The Blu-ray has more bonus footage because obviously you have more room on a Blu-ray disc. But we've got three live shots from our show uh, last year, July 4th show. Uh, We have the uh, videos for Death Comes Tomorrow and Caged In. And we have the full hour-long question and answer Thing that we did with the fans right before our, the, uh, the acoustic show was filmed. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're going to have links up to that in today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com. And I wanted to ask you about Angel. Last time I spoke with you, probably six or seven years ago at this point, you were doing some work with the band Angel. What's the status of Angel and your involvement with Angel? Well, to be quite honest, I think Frank's just decided to let it go to rest. Um, um, you know, it was. I think he was very disappointed that it was tougher than he realized to get interest back up in Angel. You know, when I was a kid, I was a huge fan, so I, I, I felt with him. I'm like, I can meet the public, you know, and not just be coming out in droves to see the band again, you know, after all these years. And uh, it's just a, a sign of the times. I mean, we've got platinum acts out there that play in front of 200 people in clubs. I mean, it's just the way things are right now. And I think he got disappointed and discouraged in that. And uh, I kept pushing him, let's go out. I wanted to do a re-recording of The Best of Angel with the new band, go out and power and feel it and all these songs, modernize new sounds, keep it keep it real to the original arrangements and sounds, but let's go do a modern, you know, a, a modern recording of it. It'll sound better. And um, and reintroduce people to Angel. I think that was. I still think that's a genius idea. That you know, then we'll work on doing another record. But there's so many great songs from this band. Let's go out and introduce people. You can't find the old Angel albums, uh, even if you try. So if we do something new, it'll make it a lot more accessible to people. But he just one day he would say, "Yeah, well, that's a great idea." The next day he'd be discouraged and not want to do it. So I think right now Frank's just kind of doing his own thing and. Uh, you know, I'd love to see it happen one day. It'd be great if we if he calls me and says, "Hey, let's go do this." I would be there in a heartbeat. But um, 
nothing's been done since, and it's kind of it's kind of been put to rest right now. Right. I just read Stephen Piercy's book, which had a lot of interesting stories about Robin Crosby, and I understand you were friends with him, right? Actually, Robin Crosby produced our very first record. Yes, I was friends with him, and you know, worked you know three months in the studio with him doing our first album. And um, he was a fantastic guy, wonderful guy. Were you in touch with him when close to when he died? You know, I, I'm i trying to think. I don't remember what year it was when he passed away. But after we finished doing the record, I still stayed in touch with him and saw him every now and then. And then, you know, he actually flew to Dallas and came out to see one of our shows. And uh, I think we had played with Motorhead. And he came and he got on stage and... Uh, and played with us, and he was a really great guy. And uh, kind of, you know, he was back in Rat, and they were out doing a thing, and I kind of lost touch a little bit. And then I heard that he wasn't in Rat anymore. And then I saw him one day when I was out there at the, uh, um, at the I was doing, uh, we were doing the, when they used to do the, uh, the convention out there. What was the name of that thing? Um, gosh, I can't remember. Um, Concrete Foundations Forum, I think it was called. Oh, okay. And every right. man in the world right. was out there. And on my way to the hotel, I was on the, one of these panels. I saw Robin hitchhiking on the side of the road. And he Holy looked shit. like Grizzly Adams. I mean, full beard. I'd never seen him like that. And I stopped, and I had the driver stop, pick him up. And we started talking, and he was, um, you know, he was, he was really, I think he was really down on his luck. I, I, some stuff must have happened to him that I didn't know about. And, uh, you know, he was like, man, look, if, you know, if you, if you ever need a guitar player, if anything happens to John, man, call me. I'd love to play with you guys and stuff. And I was like, man, Robin, what's going on, brother? You know, I didn't, I didn't know. And, you know, Robin was very private. He didn't want to tell you if you have any issues or anything like that or problems. And, um, you know, he came to the show that night, and, and that was it. After that, I'd lost touch with him. The next time I talked to him was when he was in the hospital not, uh, not long before he passed away. Wow, and um, I kind of regret not being able to have had stayed in touch with him for a while. But he was uh, just a really nice guy. I, I think the whole rock and roll thing just kind of chewed him up, spit him out, because yeah. he was really too nice of a guy and, and too sensitive to to be in a successful rock band. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Interesting stuff. Cool. So what? is going on with Lillian Axe. Will you be hitting the road and doing acoustic shows in support of the record? No, we're really getting... I, I don't want to... We're trying to do the acoustic thing as like, like a not... I guess you would say the specialty show. Like we're doing an in-store at FYE in Jackson for two weeks. And we're doing a, a show with... Uh, and it's an acoustic show, but Eric Martin from Mr. Biggs playing acoustically. Us, Randy Thompson from Zebra. And we're all playing Ted Poley. And everybody's playing acoustically. So we're cool. going to go and do that, but that's a specialty kind of thing. That's, you know, a unique thing. I don't want to tour as an acoustic thing right now. If we ever decide to do that, maybe we'd pick some selections and go and do a recreation of what we did on this thing with, you know, full-out question and answers and, and uh, you know, kind of a similar, like a repeat of what we did on the DVD because it's a whole event more than just us getting up and, and playing for two hours. And uh, we may do something like that, but... You know, we're we're born for you know to play loud and and sweat, and um, and that's the way that I, I'd like to continue doing it like that. We are 
in the process right now with new agencies to start probably hitting it hard, like in August or September. Um, I'm uh, actually getting ready to start filming uh, 13 episodes of a of a TV show. Um, wow! It's, uh, I'm last couple years I've been uh, doing paranormal investigations, so I have a show where I am the uh, the host of the show, and I have a team of investigators, and we do paranormal investigations throughout Louisiana, and with taking different unique characters with us to do these investigations. And uh, we're going to film 14 episodes starting in June, and it'll be starting to be aired on Pelican Broadcasting down here in the South, which is a, uh, it's actually a regional sports network right now, but they're branching off into different kinds of things. So we're going to do that and build the following for the show down here, shop it to networks, and, and try to build it up from that point. So we're doing cool. that in June, July, prior to us getting on YouTube. I now, this paranormal invest, the paranormal investigation group. Do you guys have a name or website that you'd want to plug? Well, it, the group's called the Veil, and um, we didn't know we don't have anything set up website yet. We will as soon as we start filming the show. Um, we've been working on this for about a year, doing investigations, honing our craft, uh, putting our team together, and uh, now I've got the team together, and then we've been. Uh, talking to Pelican Broadcasting, and they want to go ahead and do the first the first season. And we're going to start um, filming that in June. What we're doing right now is putting the list of places together. There's a lot entails in doing investigations and uh, a lot of research. Um, and that's what we're in the process, putting a list. We have about 15 places that we're going to, we're going to uh, do investigations. And so awesome. that'll be pretty busy, too. And I'm also doing a side project with uh, also the drummer for Zebra, and called Sledgehammer. We're doing all heavy classic rock, uh, from King Crimson to uh, Sticks to Sabbath to Ozzy, you know, Aerosmith, you name it. And then um, maybe out doing a few dates playing guitar with Badfinger. Remember the band Badfinger? Oh, of course, man. Paul McCartney yep. produced some of their stuff, right? I believe so. They were on the Apple label, but we redid No Matter What on our Poetic Justice album, and we had a video on MTV for that, and uh, it was one of our singles. So I met Joey Mullen, and uh out and wants to put the band together around him and go out and do some dates. So, you know, hey, I love the band. I'll, I'll go out and do it, and uh, a few dates here and there with them, and, uh, you know, Lillian Axe is my baby, and I pride and joy, but... I also enjoy doing other projects with other musicians. I've been asked to do many projects with lots of different uh, bands, and uh, I produce other bands as well. And um, so, you know, all about being involved with great musicians. Excellent. Steve, well, thanks so much for taking the time to call in and talk with us on Talking Metal tonight. It has been my pleasure. If I can ever do anything for you, please keep my number. Give me contact and get in touch with me through... Uh, but uh, it's an honor to be speaking to you guys and uh, you know, I appreciate the support. Let me know if I can do anything for you. Great, great. Steve, hang on the line with me just for a second, but right now sure. we're going to check out a song off the new record. This is acoustic and it's Lillian Axe with True Believer. This song was uh, probably our, our biggest, whatever you call a hit. It was uh, made the top 40 on R&R. 
lot of people know us by this song, so we're going to end it with the night with this song. It's called True Believer. So sing along, okay?
Thank you guys so much. You rock. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. It was amazing, amazing. All I can say. We are back after some True Believer there by Lillian Axe. I guess that's a, a fitting track that um, that you picked without even knowing that he was going to have one of these paranormal shows going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I almost mentioned to him that uh, Grant Wilson, by the way, from Ghost Hunters, who left Ghost Hunters right around the same time I quit sci-fi, uh, he is a musician and uh, was a friend of mine. I haven't spoken with him in a few years, but Grant Wilson, ghost hunter from T Taps, the sci-fi show, um, also a musician, piano player, I believe. So great guy, Grant Wilson, and great guy, Steve Blaze. It was nice to talk to him again. I actually, to prepare for this interview, I went back and listened to the interview I did with him in 2007 and it was good. It was good. I was actually impressed with my interviewing skills back then. I think it was actually my interviewing skills in 2007 may be better than they are in 2014. Anyways, guys, thanks so much for listening tonight. Three great guitar players on the show with us, George Lynch, Michael Wilton, and Steve Blaze. And again, I'm I'm excited by this George Lynch news. It's it's uh, in the interview he kind of downplays the whole album that he did. I believe it's with Brian Tishy, Michael Sweet, and I think it's James Lomenzo on bass, if my memory serves me right. And he kind of you know makes it like you know it was no big deal. He didn't care that much about it. But then when he started getting the tracks back and hearing them, he was like, wow, this is really fucking good. And then later in the interview, he reveals that he's actually asked Michael Wilson, Michael, he's actually asked Michael Sweet to become the new singer of the, whatever you want to call it, TNN project or basically Dokken project without Don, you know, as Mick Brown, Jeff Pilson, George Lynch, and Michael Sweet sounds like are forming a band and they're going to be recording and possibly touring together. So I, I think that's very exciting news. You know, it sounds like George wasn't really much of a Striper fan, but it sounds like he's very excited to be working with Michael Sweet. And, you know, that's gotten me excited. I'm not really a Striper guy myself. I, a couple songs here and there. I like that first EP they did. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, honestly, I, I sometimes get turned off by their religious message, but that's just me. But their music's good. I, that, that Reborn record they put out a number of years back, they sent me a, a, a copy of that on vinyl, and I actually enjoyed it. So they're a good band. Striper knows how to write a song. I'll give them that much, and people love them, and Michael Sweet can sure sing. And if he's going to work with one of my favorite guitar players, George Lynch, and George Lynch tell me, tells me that the stuff he's doing with Michael Sweet is good, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited by this news. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not a big Striper fan either, but I mean, I don't think you can deny that Michael Sweet has a tremendous voice and and actually a, you know, a singer that's been able to maintain his voice throughout the years. You get a lot of people that have sung that style and I mean, can't pull off a third of what they did, you know, 10 years ago, nonetheless 30 years ago. So, I mean, it it should be a very interesting pairing and you know, hopefully it uh, 
it, it helps keep these guys together and put out some some great albums. I mean, we've talked at length about how uh especially Lynch and Pilson have worked so great together and yeah. with your interview with Jeff, uh you included the I don't remember yeah, you included a, a track off of the Lynch Pilson album or was it just a question regarding the album? I, I don't remember offhand. What are you talking about? In the, today's episode? No, 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 no. In the interview that you did with, with Jeff. Oh, with Pilson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the interview yeah. I did with Pilson, we did definitely play a TNN song. Okay. And but I mean aside from TNN, they had the one album that they both did together. Oh yeah, which, yeah. We played a song off of that too. Okay, so that's what I'm getting mixed up there. All right. Uh, regardless, um, that album to me shows what a great cohesive unit the two of them are. And any time that I think they can get back together and write music and play together, I mean, it's just a plus for you know fans. I, I think it brings out the best in in both of them. And not to say that you know what they do outside of you know, working together is horrible or, or that it is mediocre by any means. It's just that when they work together, it's just at a different level, in my opinion. Right on. Definitely. All right, dude, I'm going to go to bed. Freaking exhausted. <laughs> I thought I was out of beer and then I, we, our basement flooded again, by the way. Freaking. Yeah. If this is, I didn't even really tell anybody, but it, this is like 10, 12 days ago at this point maybe even more like two weeks ago um, and just a freaking disaster. But I, I stashed beer in the basement and I thought I was all out and everything's all moved around and stuff. And I discovered a six pack down in the basement under my boy's train table right before the show. So it was warm <laughs> and it has been in the refrigerator for the past two hours. I've been doing podcasts before I did this podcast with you. I was doing stuff with Mitch and I'm ready to go drink one of them and then <laughs> go to bed. Yeah. So, so let's, let's wrap things up. You can, you know, you can support us with a PayPal donation guys. The PayPal button is right there on talkingmetal.com. You can use those Amazon links to open your Amazon and go make your purchases. You can support Victor, uh, the very same way by going to his site, marsattacksradio.com. Check out his site, Leave him a review on iTunes. Leave us a review, Talking Metal, on iTunes. And I'm, I'm excited. I feel like Talking Metal Digital, thanks to Mitch and thanks to you, Victor, has really been doing some great stuff. I mean, we, in the last two weeks, we've had major stars on Talking Metal Digital. Glenn Hughes, Alice Cooper, Queensryche, thanks to Victor who booked the interview with Queens Michael tonight, George Lynch, uh, Judas Priest, I mean, just some of my all-time favorites. And, yeah, a, a big thanks to the whole Talking Metal Digital family, Victor Ruiz, Mitch LaFon, John Astronomy. You guys are all kicking ass. So, so thanks, Victor, for doing the show with me tonight. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. And as usual, it's always a blast to do these shows with you. Cool. All right, guys, a nice almost two-hour podcast for you tonight. So take care, and we will catch you next time. You got some music to take us out, Victor? Absolutely. This is a track by a band that I wasn't expecting to like. This is a few years old already, but uh, 
still a track that I listen to frequently. It is the band Mnemic, and the name of the track is There's No Tomorrow. Yeah, wait, can you hold on one second? Yeah. Did you start absolutely. it yet? Nope. I remembered what I wanted to mention. There's a mistake in Paul Stanley's book. There's a few of them, matter of fact, but one really big one. I just want to throw this out there. I'm reading Paul Stanley's book in slow motion, but I just read he claims they never played any gigs with Mark St. John. And I just had Bruce Kulik on freaking Talking Metal who told me they played two, maybe three gigs with Mark St. John. I think it was two and a half. So, two and a half. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Paul Stanley claims they never played a gig with Mark St. John, which I think it's fairly well documented on the internet that they did. It's like, how, how can no one check that? I mean, or is he trying to rewrite history? I doubt it. I think he's just actually doesn't remember playing gigs with Mark St. John. Crazy. Yeah. Anyway, sorry that totally killed the momentum into the track. I just wanted to throw that out there. That a great book, by the way. I recommend everyone read it. But all these books that I read, I, I catch little mistakes, and I'm sure there's many more that I'm not catching. You know, but it's like you know, Stephen Piercy's book had a bunch of mistakes in it too. It's just like I, I don't, I don't get how people can't fact check this stuff. But yeah, according to Paul, he never played a gig with Mark St. John. Unbelievable. Anyways, what what song is this we're listening to? About to listen to? We're about to listen to There's No Tomorrow by the band Mnemic. Right on. Victor, thanks, man. Guys, take care. We'll catch you next Tuesday.
like we always need a purpose.